All right, let's pray, everyone. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You so much for this day. We thank You for the Gospel of truth. We thank You for Your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank You for the Spirit of God that gives us understanding, that opens our hearts and minds to the truth. We pray, Father, that even now that You would not spare our idols, that You would not spare our feelings, that You would give us the pure milk of the Gospel. We pray, Father, that You would embolden us and enliven us, that You would heal us, you would convict us and comfort us. We pray these things in the name of your Son. Amen. Amen. All right, so I'm going to ask some questions here. And as usual, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand. That might embarrass some of us. I, don't also, I also don't want you to nod your head because that might embarrass you too. But if, if any of these things I'm about to say apply to you, just blink at me. <laughs> and just, just give me a few blinks. Okay? Are there times when you feel isolated and alone? That's a lot of blinking. Even amid family, friends, and our church community. Do you believe that there are a lot of other folks in this church with deep friendships who are always getting together, having a good time, and those groups don't include you? Is that that true? Just blink. When you hear Dean and I talk about outreach and hospitality and servanthood, do you feel a lack of resources prevent you from pursuing our calls and our admonitions? Do you feel ill-equipped to obey in all that God has called you to do through your ministers? Uh, I'm one of them, and I feel (laughs) ill-equipped. Do you keep people at a distance because you have experienced pain or difficulty in a relationship? Have people let you down? Have people abandoned you, sinned against you, judged you? Or perhaps people aren't worthy of meaningful friendship because they are too prudish, too arrogant, self-important, and self-righteous. Not like you, of course. Pretty much do you keep people at arm's length where it's safest to keep them? Isolation, a lack of resources, and ill treatment. That's what I'm calling this. Do you suffer from these things? Now, obviously not all the time, but I I would say, most of you are going to blink at me here, that pretty frequently... These things pop up. They come at us. Now, these are characteristics of a community that since the 16th century has had a name. A ghetto. This is what you call a ghetto. An ill-treated, isolated community lacking in resources. Now, I understand that the common modern use of that word has a lot of connotations and uh, means something very specific. And even in other circumstances, I'd argue that since that's how we use the word, that's what it means now. But a ghetto is a very old idea. It started, obviously, in Venice when the Jews moved there because they were bankers. But being Jews, they had no political capital. They were rich, but they had no political capital of any kind. In fact, um, if you borrowed a bunch of money from a Jew and you didn't want to pay them back, uh, you would just accuse them of witchcraft, and then the authorities would come and take them and put them in prison and take all of their money and give it to you. This is common practice in the Middle Ages. I mean, I think that uh, in the modern use, something that's ghetto, right, has, has certain connotations. You don't usually refer to a trailer park as a ghetto, right? Usually when we say ghetto, it's inner city, ethnic, low income, right? This is how it's, how it's used. But the idea is much bigger. And I, and I want you to see the bigger idea here because I'm going to use this word a lot today. In the 80s, I remember going to Chinatown with my dad, and I, I, that was a ghetto. The, the people there had very little political 
resources. They were very ill-treated. They were very inward-facing, right? The Chinese people would go to the Chinese grocery store, and they go to the Chinese restaurant and the Chinese school. And, and this is, in uh, World War II, how it was so easy to round up the Jews, because they just they lived in neighborhoods together. And it's still true if you go to Brooklyn, you know when you've wandered into a Jewish neighborhood, because they all have the funny hats with the curls, speaking Yiddish, right? A ghetto. Now, what I'm going to argue is that we, in fact, live in a ghetto. Three kinds of ghettos. You live in a ghetto of one, yourself, a ghetto of your family, and I believe very strongly that we've created a ghetto here in this church. Okay? We did not set out to build ghettos, though. I firmly believe that. Nobody in this church, I believe, set out and said, you know what I want is an isolated, ill-treated community lacking resources. Let's go and build that in Linwood, of all places. But we are isolated, aren't we? The church fluctuates between 40 and 90 people. It has several times. We don't have access to the wheels of cultural or political power. We may be financially wealthy, but it's not exactly like people are clamoring to know what we think about stuff. We, we are spread over a vast geographical area. That is, in fact, one of the most expensive to live in the entire nation. And, to boot, we like big families. We are into big families. We are surrounded by unbelief and darkness. Secular progressivism, it's a whole thing, is very potent in the Pacific Northwest. 80% of the area area's people do not believe in God, the triune God. 80% of the people in this area, right? There be giants in the land, is what I'm saying. There's a lot working against us. I remember when most of you either were not married or newly married and drove sedans. <laughs> I remember. I remember when we all turned those sedans in because they no longer could carry all of us and our family to destinations. I remember when post-church lunches were out of this world. I remember even going out to a restaurant after church. That was many years ago. <laughs> I remember when we could meet as couples on a weekday evening, like a Tuesday. Hey, everybody come over. And everybody came over. I remember going camping with some of you, having costume parties with some of you, and going for drinks with some of you. But life has changed us a great deal, hasn't it? It's, it's taken our resources, and it's all good. I'm not, I am in no way up here going to be like, you know what, we should have done with had fewer kids. Uh, <laughs> I'm about to have number six. I would not say that. That's a stupid thing to say. I, I'm here to say it, it takes our resources, doesn't it? It saps our energy. We have in our own way also experienced very trying circumstances. Hurt and pain and brokenness have come. They've left scars and wounds that are still healing. And I know this about us. Okay, We didn't set out to build a ghetto. We built it because we needed to protect ourselves. We need to protect our families. We need to protect this church from the ugliness of the world, from the brokenness of it. We look at the regional influences, the circumstances of life, the disappointed relationships, the brokenness of the world, and, and we confess that there are giants in the land that can't be overcome. And so we hunker down and we build walls, narrowing our reach and our influence. We grow apathetic and, and inactive as we fill our lives with more and more busy work. Distractions and entertainments to dull the overtaxed senses and muscles. Right? I love my iPad. I'll tell you, I love it. You know why? Because I can sit in my living room and for a couple, like an hour and a half, I don't have to think about anything. 
except conquering, you know, on some video game Eastern Europe. And as my wife said so many years ago, why are you sitting there pretending to take over the world when you should be out there actually taking over the world? It's a good question. Well, this is easier. And with my credit card, I can buy more resources. <laughs> right? I need a tank to take over Berlin. Bam, done. Real life isn't like that. When I need more resources, it's hard to come by. Right? I can't suddenly make $15,000 more a year. In these walls, in these little ghettos that we've built, I find, too, this is very real, that we are ashamed and we, are, we struggle already <laughs> with reminders to go into the world, to minister there and to serve our neighbors, to reach out and to love one another. It's burdensome to be told again what you're not doing. So for the next five weeks, I'm going to stand here and cry. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> This is what I want to present a rallying cry to us. I want you guys to understand something. I think the spirit is moving in our midst. I do. And, and I think it's moving in this way. I think we are beginning to realize, even though you didn't know this word before I started, that we live in a ghetto. We live in ghettos. And I want us to rally around this cry. It's time to get out of the ghetto. It's time to get out of the ghetto itself. It's time to get out of the ghetto of the family. And it's time to get out of the ghetto of this church. So let's start tearing down some walls. See if I can get my act together here. Let's talk about getting out of the ghetto of yourself. John 15, verses 16 through 17. You did not choose me, says Jesus, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. These things I command you, so that you will love one another. God chose you. You didn't choose him, right? We're Calvinists. We remember this. God has appointed you to have a relationship with the Father that is personal, that is repaired, and that is eternal. The kind of relationship in which you take your needs to the Father in true, honest vulnerability, and he responds. You do not approach the Father on your own merits, but in Jesus' name. You do not stand before the throne of grace because you chose him. Okay? It's not where we wanted to go, but it's where we find ourselves, and that is a great thing. But we're not here simply because that, that's it, right? He just invites us in, he gives us a comfy chair in heaven at his right hand, and that's just where we live our lives. It's not. You do not stand before the throne of grace because you chose him. It's, you don't stand before the throne of grace because you're a good guy or a wonderful woman, though you are good guys and wonderful women. You stand before God. You approach the Father because Jesus chose you. Uniquely you. As we're going to go on to see here, you have things this city needs. There are people in this city that need you. There are people in this room that need you. There are people outside these walls that need you too. You stand before God. You approach the Father because Jesus chose you. And the Father equips you to fulfill Jesus' mission in the world, which was what? To overcome it with love. That's all. And we all, again, this is what I was talking about. We think, oh my gosh, go and love the world. That is a ginormous task. And we all just dug like three feet further down in our ghetto. Right? Put a little bit more on top of the wall. But it says he equips us too. This is the part that we leave out. This is the part that we don't spend time meditating on. And, and this is the part I, I believe that makes all the difference. He didn't equip you to do it alone. 
And he didn't equip you to take over the whole world. This is where we're mistaken. He equipped you and you and you and you and you and you together to go into Lidwood and let your light shine. That is a much easier task, isn't it? Right? Everyone blink up at me if that's a much easier task. Together taking a light into Lidwood is easier than overcoming the world with love. So God did it. Jesus did it to the world. So that what he could do is have us go down into a little tiny neighborhood in Linwood of all places. I mean, it's right? Linwood. It's kind of funny that this is where we're at. I kind of wish it was London or something. But anyway, I digress. He wants us to go into this little place as a group and let our light shine. Now, you approach the Father in Jesus' name and what, and what will be denied to you? If you go to him in Jesus' name, what is the Father going to say? Well, he says in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how we not also with him, with him, with him, graciously give us all things. Jesus, you know what? I'm going to go to the Father and I'm going to ask him for a bigger TV. Jesus is like, good luck with that. I'm going to stay here. Right? If you go apart from Jesus, if you want something apart from Jesus, you're not going to get it. But if you go in Jesus' name to get it with Jesus, right? If it's, if it's consistent with him and his character and his will, you will, in fact, get it. So if you really want to reach out to a neighbor, something Jesus is into, <laughs> and you go to the Father in Jesus' name to get the resources and strength to do that, what do you think the Father is going to do? There is no need to ever feel isolated or lacking in resources. The Father is yours. The throne of grace stands before you. The Father who did not spare his own son is ready to fulfill your every need if you are consistent with Jesus' character and will. Now, this is also very interesting in this verse. It says go. It doesn't say stay and bear fruit. <laughs> stay at home and bear fruit. Got it. Done. I got six kids. I'm in. But that's not what it says. It says go and bear fruit. Going is an essential aspect of the Christian life. Okay, Going is very... But we don't go, do we? We build ghettos. Your ministry is to go and to bear fruit that abides and to love one another. Now, this is, in fact, always what men, man was made to do. The blessed man is not a man who is concerned with his own welfare, focused on self-preservation, self-determination, or autonomy. But as it says in Psalm 1-3, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. You see, there's some parallels here. And its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. This is the life of a blessed man. To be planted by the river of life and to bear fruit in its season and to not wither. So if all of this is true, how could you ever feel isolated? How could we ever feel like we lack anything? If we're trees planted by streams of living water to bear fruit in our season, if we're called and equipped to go and bear fruit and to love one another, how could we ever feel isolated? How could we ever feel like we lack resources? The, the problem isn't God, is the point of all of this. The problem isn't what he wants us to do. It's not even what he's willing to equip us to do. The problem is we've hunkered down and we're not paying attention. We're hiding in our ghettos. We know what God wants us to do. We know how to get it done. But we're overwhelmed with life. We are the servants of Christ. We are the people of God. We are called and appointed to be a glorious forest of blessed trees. 
This is from Numbers 24, 5, and 6. How lovely are your tents, O Jacob. That's you. You're the people of Israel. Your encampments, O Israel, like palm groves that stretch afar, like gardens beside a river, like aloes that the Lord has planted, like cedar trees beside the waters. The Pacific Northwest is a wilderness, isn't it? It is a God-forsaken wilderness at times. And the reason we're here is to be planted as a garden of the Lord, where he walks in the cool of the day with us. But that requires, again, believing it, believing it, and awakening in ourselves that this is, in fact, what he's called us to do and that he has actually equipped us to do it. We feel like a tree alone on the crest of a weather-beaten and desolate hill, whipped by the wind, without water and bearing little to no fruit. Right? Blink, it, blink away at me. I'm up on this hill. I'm not a city on a hill. I'm a withering tree that's just wind-beaten and very, very, very thirsty. That's how it feels. But, but I, this is what we're going to be talking about over the next... Why? What are, what are your habits like? What, what are the systemic issues that get you to, to, to lose this picture of trees planted by living waters, bearing fruit in their season? Okay? We're not waiting for God. We're not. He's waiting for us. He's at work. He's done everything that is, requi- that is required for us to stand before the throne of grace and be equipped to go and bear fruit. We think we're always waiting for him. But he's already busy. He's all over Linwood. And if you go out and you look around, you can see it. We're not waiting for him. He's waiting for us. But we're hiding in ghettos. We're so focused on ourselves that we either forget our calling and equipping to bear fruit and love one another, or we purposely neglect it. I'm going to take these in turn. Someone who is so focused on themselves that they forget their calling and equipping. There's a guy named Jim who really wanted an iPhone. Now, that is not wicked in itself, is it? No, we would all agree. That's perfectly fine. So Jim saves up his money, and Jim goes to the AT&T store. He's very excited, by the way, about this phone. He's wanted it a very long time. So he lays his money down. He knows exactly what he wants. The salesman is so happy because this is like the easiest sale in the world. This guy knew exactly what he wanted. They had it in stock, and they go about now the very long 40-minute process of switching from one iPhone to another, which is really long. I know because I know Jim. Jim told me this story. <laughs> I, I just totally ruined it, didn't I? All right. So Jim is talking to the salesperson. And, and even the sales guy, after a while, says, I don't know what it is, but we're getting along really well. And, and Jim thinks, is this guy like going to ask me to go steady? It's kind of funny. Like the guy, they just warmed to one another. And the salesperson is telling like all kinds of information. He doesn't even understand why he himself is telling all this information to this person. But the Jim is so focused on the phone, he's not really paying attention. Turns out the sales guy is from the same small town Jim's parents are. Turns out this guy is telling Jim all this stuff. Like, he, he would love to have a family. He works two jobs. And Jim's thinking, well, why does he work two jobs? But Jim doesn't ask why he works two jobs. Jim is not interested in the sales guy at all. He's interested in an iPhone. Now, Jim leaves... And Jim drives down the street, and Jim's like, wait a minute. Exactly. What happened? I'm always praying that my eyes would see these situations where my life would not simply be about me. 
could you just give me a moment, Jesus, where I could go out there and I could have contact with somebody and where I could, I could preach the gospel, I could be the light in the world. And Jim is not paying attention when it happens because Jim is interested in a phone. And again, I'm, no, there is nothing wrong with a phone. Go out and buy as many iPhones as you want. <laughs> but talk to the sales guy. Okay? This wasn't my friend Jim, this was me. I was at a grocery store and I thought this person was doing a fantastic job and I just said, you're doing a really good job. And, and it was like the person had never heard that in their whole life. And now, it's, it's almost like I, I, I was back at the store and the, and the person waved to get me to come back over to their line because they just wanted to, right? I mean, people all around us. The problem is we walk around in these ghettos, these walled-off little communities of one, and we're not paying attention to what's going on. We're not watching. We're not seeing the signs. We're not paying attention because we just go about our lives seeking the things that please us, seeking our own cares, our own concerns. Now, this is some of us. Some of us actually, though, willfully at times neglect our calling. And there are, there are reasons for that. I understand that there are reasons for that. You were at a woman's study discussing home births versus hospital births, and it got so heated that you were so badly burned, you still have the scar. You were at so-and-so's house, and you drank too much, and you talked too much, and you made a donkey seat out of yourself, and not only am I never going back to that guy's house, I am never going to anyone's house. That was also Jim. <laughs> You've repeatedly gotten close to people, and then you know what they do? They move. I, I build walls for that reason. There they went. I guess that was the only friend I was ever going to have. I would talk to that guy, but I don't know his name. So then you go about your business. <laughs> I'm, sure there's some, I, I'm sure there's people here who do that. That guy seems like he talks too much. I wouldn't know what to say to him. He seems like a lot of work. These are all the, we, this is what we do. We build these walls because we don't want to deal with people and their problems, people in their lives. Maybe you're waiting for the big if win. If I live somewhere where it wasn't all spread out and I didn't have to drive through traffic to get to so-and-so's house. When the kids are older, when the house is nicer, when we have more time, if we get a, the house cleaned up, if I'm not too tired, win, 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 if, if, if. And then the walls of the ghetto just get higher and higher higher. Maybe you're an introvert and talking to people causes you actual pain. Maybe you're immature and you know it. Maybe you're tired. Maybe you're embarrassed. Maybe you're arrogant and you know it. Maybe you go to someone's house and you can't stop, stop judging them. Look at how they had those kids back in just the middle of the floor. I was at someone's house recently and I noticed that. Because like clearly they had a child vacuuming this because all along the edge is like so many Cheerios I could fill a bowl and have breakfast. And I'm thinking to myself, don't notice. Don't notice. It's true. Maybe you, you go to someone's house and, and you see how nice it is and you're never going to have that person in your house because <coughs> good night. The comparison would just ruin you. You go to this palace and then you invite them to your tent. So this is what happens. Right? We have all experienced all of these things, and what happens is it's brick by brick by brick by brick by brick until the community is so small and the walls are so thick we can't hear or understand what's going on outside of them. We don't even care anymore. We grow so apathetic. What I care about is what's going on in my kingdom of God, right? Because you take your little ghetto and you just scroll God's kingdom on the wall and you think, that's good. I'll just take this little area here. 
But it's, it, it's dangerous, right? It's a dangerous business to get close to people. It's dangerous to open your home. It's dangerous to open your life. It's dangerous to talk to the salesperson at AT&T because what happens if he actually does become your friend? I don't have time for that, right? We got kids and stuff. It just heaps up the burden, though, if we just go after the fact that we're not doing it. Right? If we just, no, you need to go. Come on, just go. No. Turn your eyes to heaven, to the God who called you, the God who's equipping you. Start there. Okay? We all need to take a big step back, calm down. <laughs> the world is not going to go to a handbasket just because it takes us a little while to, you know, carefully take these walls around us down. We've got to do that. We've got to go to the Lord and say, Lord, you've called me and equipped me. What are the walls? Why can't I follow you? As Peter said. It's dangerous business, but the alternative is even more dangerous. This is one of my favorite quotes from C.S. Lewis. Love anything in your heart will certainly be wrong and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around with hobbies and luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or at least the risk of tragedy, is damnation. The only place outside heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all dangers and distresses of love is hell. I believe that the most lawless and inordinate loves are less contrary to God's will than a self-invited and self-protective lovelessness. That the ghetto that you're living in will be your tomb. Now, how do you get out of it? Repent and believe. Repent and believe. Jesus Christ has called you. Jesus Christ equips you. Jesus Christ puts you before the face of God. And he, he's giving you everything that you need to go and to love others and bear fruit in his name. Now, some of you, all of us, I know this will happen to me. I will tear down these walls all around me. I get out of my ghetto, get ready to talk to Jim's AT&T guy. And I'll find there's more walls who have names. And that's the ghetto of my family. They're not ghetto. They are a ghetto. Yeah, I just want to make sure I point that out. <laughs> key, key distinction. Jeremiah 29, 4-6. This is taking me a long time. I promise I'll hurry. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. And we all say, yes, amen. Kingdom work, baby. Bring it. Making money and making babies. That's what Protestants have been doing since Luther, right? That was the revolution. You mean I can leave the monastery, love Jesus more by having a wife and making money? Yes. And all the Lutherans followed him, right? And this is what we're about, right? Protestants invented sort of the modern markets. Right? We invented wealth as we know it. It was our work ethic as Protestants that went out and made everything that you see here. Okay, we know what it's like to live in Babylon. This part is pretty fairly straightforward, so I'll go quickly. Right, we live in, a, in an age, in a place where using the correct pronoun is somehow like a high holy offense, 
that people cannot stand. What do you do? What do you? That's not his preferred gender, what you know, designation. Is that what they call it? I have this meeting at work. You got to make sure you use people's preferred gender designation. And I was like, I'm not even really sure what you just meant. And I was just that squirrely guy the whole time, like, what is that word you're using? What does that word designation mean? Can we get a dictionary and look it up? Because, I mean, that's all I had at work, because what am I going to do? If you make me do this, I will leave. Okay, bye. Right? This is where we live now. This is the battles that we're in. Pronouns, for goodness sakes. Right? A, a woman walking around with a pregnant tummy with five kids is like the most underhanded political revolutionary thing you can do in this society, because it's totally opposed to fruitfulness. It's totally opposed, right, with all the sodomite politics and everything. Fruitfulness is something that this culture is not into. So th this particular one, it's, not hard. it's fine. We like building walls here, and they make it very easy for us to build walls. Christian headship, bam, one wall. Submissive wives, wall. Homeschooling, wall. Get me out of this culture. It's horrible out there. It's terrible. And, and, and I mean, we use Christian headship to build a ghetto in. We take all these things that God has given us, and instead of using them as weapons, we use them as defensive positions. Right? The Benedict option now is the thing everyone's talking about. But he doesn't say build monasteries, cease to get married and have children, take your six kids and go to Whole Foods. Use three carts. Fine. If you annoy people, it's good for them. You're helping. You know, you're, you're producing the fruit of the Spirit in them. More patience. Right? My wife is the queen of that. Let's go to Whole Foods and everyone gets a cart. It's true. It's revolutionary, my friends. We live in Babylon. Now, we all know marriage is great. We love it. Complementarianism, check. Submissive wives, check. Christian education, check. Minivans, full, check. Right? This is what we're all about. This is, I mean, everyone, you guys are all very excited right now. This kind of kingdom work just gets us all going. <laughs> because God loves godly families. That's how he moves in the world, right? Okay, now I'm going to go back to the verses in Jeremiah, and I'm going to read them to the end of the section. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles who I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce, take wives and have sons and daughters, take wives of your son for your sons, and give your daughters in marriage, that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there, and do not decrease. But seek the welfare of the city where you have, where I have sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord on its behalf, for its wealth in its welfare, you will find your welfare. So, is God simply concerned with you and your family? No. Is He unconcerned with you and your family? No. Is he concerned about far more than just you and your family? Yes. And what does he want you to be concerned with? More than your family. More than your family. Hey, I, I don't know how many times I have to sit my kids down and be like, your life is not about you. Right? Um, it's this hilarious thing now. Lewis has had to say, I'm not the king so many times, that they're playing a game, and they say, okay, you're the king, and he says, no, I'm not the king. <laughs> Because what do I, I'm constantly having to fight against myself. 
Kids, what do you want for dinner? Kids, what do you want for dessert? Kids, what books do you want to read? Kids, what do you want to study in school? Kids, 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 kids. This is, I make their lives all about them. And then I get frustrated because their lives are all about them. <laughs> right? Flute practice, band practice, Latin classes, soccer practice. Right? The kids want to be and do everything, and I'm like, cool, let's do this. I'm going to give you more than my parents gave me because that's what Americans do. So, you know, we can't welfare the city. We have self-imposed English curriculums that we have to get through. Right? We're homeschoolers. If your kid doesn't get to it by the end of the year, you just keep going because you can. Right? I, I mean, this was hard. I transitioned from Providence to home, and it's like, what do you mean they're not done yet? Oh, well, I guess what we'll do is just keep going. Seems legit. So why don't we just put that off till tomorrow and have so-and-so over because so-and-so seems like he needs to come over. <laughs> I wasn't talking about you, Becky. <laughs> You're laughing like that? Come on. My family's clothes go from dirty basket to washer to clean basket to backside to dirty basket. Anybody else here have that problem? Right? I, I'm thinking about selling her dressers. <laughs> I, how do I concern myself with the welfare of the city? Cable is expensive. Do you know how much we spend at Costco? It's, a, it's absurd. I could, I could literally, I think, feel, feel, feed the Congo. I did this thing the other day, and I, I, I am richer than 87% of the people who live in the world. Now, I, and I live in a place where I could take that and do a lot with it. But, you know, I, I have kids, and they have 50,000 different needs, some of them self-imposed, some of them not, that i got to take care of. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm busy. We live in ghettos. Now, and I understand this. Now, when, when Sunday comes around, and it's the only time to see Dad, please do not give away Sunday afternoon. I'm not saying that. What you need to do is work out so that they see Dad more often. That's what I would say. And, and, and I understand what life is like. I have a dad who, who was a workaholic because he had to be. And then he, that eventually he just became one because that's what he was used to. It was hard for him to do anything else. It was hard for him. <laughs> I remember when he was still taking overtime jobs that he didn't need. And he was like, I don't know, I'll just give the money away. Because he just didn't know, what to, I mean, he didn't know what else to do. The welfare of the city is your responsibility. Whether, whether you like living in this area or not, okay, Dutch evangelism in a, in a land where 80% of the people are unbelievers is not the only kind of evangelism that we are clearly called to do. And, and, and I mean, I, I'm right there with you guys. I don't believe that I'm called to do that. I don't believe I'm equipped to do that, and so I don't. But the mission of the church is the mission of the church, which... Our friend Dean is going to come back and tell us all about when, when he's done with his vacation. What is the mission of the church? Most of the time, I don't even want to have the conversation because I'm fine in my ghetto. I'm good. i got a lot of kids to take care of. It's busy. I want to just sit down with my iPad and take over Central Europe again. But we got to get out of the ghetto. That's the whole idea here. Get out of the ghetto. That's the rallying cry. The last struggle to getting out of the ghetto, I do promise this one's faster. Individuals are saved into a community. This is the church now. We're all brought from different places to this place. 
bound up together in Jesus Christ. St. Paul refers to this community as a temple of the Lord, but it's unfinished, isn't it? It's a work in progress. It's an ever-expanding renovation project, acquiring new people, new tribes, new lands, new areas of human culture, sanded, refitted, resurfaced, polished, and repurposed without end from the rivers to the ends of the earth. This is what the church is about. It's a renovation project. It's messy, but this building is being shaped into something beautiful that houses, of all things, the triune God. It's a beautiful thing. I'm not knocking this for a second here. But like all renovation projects in which you are still trying to live, it strains patience, strains belief, strains our ability to envision the final product. It requires a lot of faith and hope to live in a, in a renovation project, doesn't it? Have you guys ever tried to cook in a kitchen that's being rebuilt? Right? I imagine, poor Nielsen's, your kid's trying to go and play soccer and it's in, in the yard where you're like trying to replace the grass. Like, what do you do? I've lived in a house that was being renovated. It was very annoying. Like suddenly the hot water doesn't work. Like I have plans. I got to get going here. And th- this is where we live. It's a renovation project. Now, the people who live in this renovation project are not exactly um, Christ-like always. I think that won't shock anyone. We're not perfect. Okay? People in church are not perfect. I'm sorry to tell you that. The people being repurposed into this building, the church, are delicate and difficult. They require specialized tools. You and me. Those are the specialized tools. I don't know if you know this, but you, with all of your attributes, all of your life experiences, all of your frailties, all of your character traits, all the glories that are you and all of the difficulties that are you, complete me. My wife doesn't complete me. My wife is me. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. But without you, I'm just a foot without a kneecap. Without you, I'm an ear without a head. What's the ear going to do without the head? Right? The ear is nothing without the head. The father is the father because he has a son. The son is the son because he has a father. I'm an ear because there's a head. You're a foot because there's a leg. Now, I'm quoting Jerry Maguire when I say you completely, but it's true. Right? You take this person and you take this person, you put them together, now we're getting somewhere. But we don't believe that. You, I, you don't think I complete you. Oftentimes I don't act like you complete me. I act like it's my job to finish you. Like, oh, here, give me some fish and I'm just going to clean the fish now. Like I'm doing some kind of surgery. But that's not how it works. You need everyone in this community, not just the folks whose company you enjoy the most, those who are the most compatible with you, the most likable, the most lovable, and the least work. This is true. I instill a lot of patience in people because it takes a lot of patience to be close to me. Ask my wife. Right? I am like a fruit of the spirit machine. You get me into your life and you will find that all kinds of fruit of the spirit are suddenly growing in abundance. <laughs> and, and I'll be honest. that You are all uniquely gifted to produce the spirit of fruit in me. <laughs> Trust me. Right? And that humbles us all, doesn't it? This community is not for the worthy, it's not for the finished or the Christ-like, but it's for those who are being transformed into Christ-likeness. We aren't there yet. We're a renovation project, and we are, in fact, a project. 
I need a lot of work. I need a lot of ministry. Again, ask my wife. I do. This church is not a giant fig leaf to hide behind. Dean and I are not the sole, are not solely responsible for the ministry of this church. That's not what we're called to do. We don't do the ministry of the church. We equip you to do the ministry of the church. And now this, I'm going to get really seriously into your lives here. What is it? You're the, you're the church. I, I could tell you what I think it is, but you guys have all been going here for a while. What is it? Now, I, I, I would listen to the argument that you're not really equip, equipped well, right? I mean, you've got me on the elder board. It's kind of hard to be. But I'm going to honestly ask you, what is it? What are we equipping you to do? Ephesians 4, 11 through 16, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Until, you got to keep going, until we all attain to the unity of the faith, the knowledge of the Son of God, mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The saints do the work of the ministry. Okay? Dean and I are not the ministers of this church in that sense. We are the equippers. You guys are the ones who go out into the world and do the work of the ministry. It's time to get out of the ghetto. What is, in fact, the work of the ministry? Earlier today, Isaiah 49, verse 6. It is, it is, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob. Just building up the body is too light a thing. Feels like too heavy a thing to me. But this is, in fact, the word of God, so something needs to be adjusted. It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. You are called and you are equipped not to be a walled off, secluded community of the uber religious, away from the world and out of sight. You are not saved to build a ghetto. You are the commonwealth of Israel called and equipped to go and bear fruit by loving one another letting the light of Christ shine in our faces, through our faces to the world. It's time we get out of the ghetto because God has, in fact, real, real work for us to do. 80% of the people around here don't believe in him. That's a very fertile field. And you are called and equipped to go into that field and do the work. So where do we go from here? It's great. Let's do this. Let's get out of the ghetto. How do we get out of the ghetto? We've been here a while. How do we get out? If you feel isolated, if you feel overwhelmed, overtaxed, and under-resourced, what do you do? Well, I'm going to go back to the verse that I read at the beginning of the first point. Jesus came into this world, and he took away every, everything standing between you and the Father. He called you to come out of the darkness into the light, so that in the light he could equip you to go and bear fruit 
So this is what we're going to be talking about. You're not alone because the Father and the Son and the Spirit are with you. You do not lack the resources necessary because God has given you everything you need to turn from unrighteousness to righteousness. You're not alone because we are all here together. And together, right, putting away the bad habits, taking up the habits of grace, believing that we are called, believing that we are equipped, going to the Father and asking for what we together, that's how we're going to get out of the ghetto. Pray for me. Pray for one another. Pray that the Lord our God would not just give us opportunities like Jim had at the AT&T store, but that we would use them at work, at the grocery store, at the AT&T store, in our homes, in this church. That all the opportunities that are all around us, that we would actually see them. Okay? And as we go over the next five weeks, we're going to talk more about these things. Okay? We've got to pull down these walls. We've got to climb out and go into the world and do the work that we're called and equipped to do. Are you tired of living in a ghetto? Do you believe you do live in a ghetto? Are you ready to get out? Again, we're not waiting for the Lord. He's waiting for us. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for this opportunity to look at ourselves and your words, to be exposed, Father, to be comforted in the way that we need and confronted in the way that we need. And I pray, Father, that this uh, sermon would not be in any way, shape, or form a burden, but that it would convict deeply those who are in sin, that it would comfort those who desperately need it, that we would, in fact, turn our eyes away from ourselves to one another, to the people who live in this area, to the experiences all around us, Father, to, to be ambassadors, to be the light of Christ in the world, Father. I pray, Lord, that you would restore us, that you would encourage us and strengthen us, Father, that you would encourage us by your Spirit to come to you, to thank you so much for calling us out of the darkness, and to look to you to equip us for every situation that you've called us to. We thank you, Father, and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.